Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Saskia. I'm Chantelle. And today we're joined by a special guest, Rebecca Scroggs, who is an actor and an activist. Hi. So today uh, we're doing an alternative to Women's Hour because unfortunately Tiso's not here, but that's okay because we're just going to have a lovely time. (laughs) Woman's time. Women's women's, women's issues. Rebecca, do you want to tell us a little bit about, yeah, what what is it you do? Well, I am an actor or actress, or we could have that debate as well. That's a whole... I know. Yeah, what do you say? What do you say? You know what? The goalposts keep shifting, which Mm. is interesting. It's just an open debate. So when I... I used to think I was quite right on to be like, I'm an actor. Yeah. I'm just Mm -hmm. a human doing this craft. Um, And I've been happy with that for years. And then I met some actresses who are actually... uh, activists in that they're sort of been very much involved in the Time's Up and the UK version based version of that movement and very much having the active conversation about women in the industry. And they want to reclaim actresses because they want to reclaim the femininity inherent in who we are and to not mm. neutralise or deny the feminine as something specific, which I totally get. Yeah. I'm just not sure which what speaks to me more. Yeah. So um, I remember being told that actress implied prostitute. It because it did, and but also, I don't feel like that connotation. No, I think that's weak. <laughs> Who implied? Where did that come from? Well, back in the day yeah. when women were first allowed on the stage yeah. in the seventeenth century, okay. being an actress, having a profession yeah. where you showed yourself to the public and obviously performed scenes that might be like sort of lascivious or whatever, yeah. just made you synonymous with being a loose woman, a woman for hire for pay. And a lot of actresses were courtesans or mistresses. There was a famous... Um, Nell Gwynn. Nell Gwynn is the most mm. famous. She was a mistress of Charles II in the kind of crazy restoration period after, you know, after we oh restored gosh, after Civil Tiso War. would love this. Yeah, he would. <laughs> I, I'm quite sad not to meet Tiso because oh. he knows a lot more than me, but I, I love English history as well. Yeah, he and when is he, a big when fan. He, when he geeks out on, like, the Reformation, I'm like, yeah. Should, That's um, right. Yeah, you'll just have to come back. Oh. What a shame. Yeah. <laughs> Rebecca Scroggs take two. Okay, so okay, we call you actor then. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's call me an actor. That's what I probably feel more more comfortable with at the I moment. Mean, it's a funny thing, isn't shift. it? Because there are certain things where adding an S on the end is awful. Like for example, my grandma still says Jewess, which is wow, extraordinary. Yeah. Like. It's, isn't it awful? Did you know that? And I, I don't I think this is the same thing. I think this might be to do with language. But if you're Filipino, yeah. Filipina, yeah. did you know that there's like That's one's an woman, one's man? So Filipina's woman. Yeah. I didn't. I only learned that this week. There's a Latino and Latino as well. Oh, of course, and that's, yeah. That's, that's Spanish. That's so an speak, It was a okay. Spanish colony. So is, is, that, is, is that slightly different to what we're saying here? Yeah, so that becomes... So, for example, I'm Seychelles was, but my dad is Seychelles were... Because in French, oh. like, je suis français and je suis française, like, oh. the, the pronunciation is different if you're a man or a woman. So it just depends on the language, if you have a gender for yeah, a particular like a, word. Yeah, okay. a noun for something. Yeah, so that is different, yeah. So, like, I think in English, because, yeah, we have a funny relationship with things, normally if you feminise something, it means it's lesser. So, like, a priestess is, like some kind of, like, crazy voodoo, like, ridiculous thing, whereas a priest is, like, a very serious man of God. Oh. You know what I mean? Oh. Yeah, I'm getting... Re- I'm, re- I'm becoming really, like, aware of different words that I use that have probably been highly 
influenced by like patriarchy like you probably notice that I always say guys you guys I, I always all the time. I always say guys but I'm not saying it because I'm not in any way saying it because oh I'm thinking everyone like the default is masculine yeah but that's what it is As in, like, I know but like I know you. I know but I but it's more like the language that I use around that around there is sort of more uh a cultural thing, but I guess that ultimately it's come from. Yeah, have you been reading on Simone de Beauvoir? Yeah, so it's like oh, it's feminine just... is negative and other. So if you came mm. in and went, women, no man would turn around. But obviously, guys just means men, so everyone turns guys, around because you guys, hey guys, yeah, yeah, I know it's but like I don't know when I was in women's officer. I don't think we actually told anyone off for it, but, like, I remember people being like, we shouldn't say guys, we should just be like, so I used to say women. And then someone told me off because they were like, um, I think that's, like, a black woman thing. And I was like, uh, okay, right, well, I... I it's going to what to do now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, can, it can get very complicated, which is which is great, because it's just, it's just a, it means the conversation's alive. It's yeah, like, it's good to keep critiquing you know, yourself, isn't it? It's a bit oh, like yeah. uh, accepted label for being mixed yeah. race you were talking yeah. about that recently and yeah. I think about that a lot, lot. Yeah. Um, because I went from being assimilated half caste to mixed race yeah. I think people tried dual heritage but that's never stuck with me no. because, because for me that's I feel that's a real well, I don't know if it's a lie just because I grew up in a very white space yeah. so I don't think I have a dual but I also do have a heritage a DNA either yeah but anyway, and now um, people of colour, which I really was enjoying for yeah. ages. I've been like, people of colour, it's so inclusive. Yeah. And I still feel that. It's just a, as a theatre director called Kwame Koyama, yeah. who's just taken over the young Vic, and he's come, he's English, but been in America being the only artistic director of colour in the States until, like, he left Baltimore he's a legend, last year. He? He's an absolute what? legend. Was he an actor? Only... Was he an actor? Yeah, he was in casualty. He was in casualty. Which one? We just had... We he was just a nurse. Had, we just had, like... In, like, the 90s. Before yeah. we started recording, we just had, like, an amazing chat about oh, um, the good old days with casualty and EastEnders, which hopefully we'll get to talk about later. Yes, we will. Um, but just on your point there about different categories, so um, for the sociologists out there, and actually for anyone out there, Miri Song, who is a sociologist who has focused on... Um, um, mixedness and mixed race identities she talks about the need for us to be very careful when we're using words such as heritage and dual nationality and these sorts of things because sometimes that it can be implied that someone who's maybe from Denmark and Norway for example as in parents they're of dual heritage but that takes away the emphasis of racialization now racialization is the experience of people that is uh, predominantly experienced by people of color um, people that are seen on racialized terms yeah. seen who, is, in terms who of, are seen as not white who are seen as not, yeah. yeah seen as not white essentially um so yeah so i know what you mean about not being necessarily feeling comfortable with the term such as dual heritage because this is what yeah, yeah she talks well, and about also in america they use the term biracial a lot and i don't like that. i've seen that a lot and it makes me really uncomfortable i did because you just think like well isn't that just sticking to the idea that race is some kind of a centralized mm. category mm. yeah i mean and Kwame, he sent a tweet. Uh, it was basically like, he, he said, I don't like one. Well, he didn't say I don't like. He said, I'm, you know, uncomfortable with this people of colour label because it still centralises whiteness in our definition of yeah. ourselves. And I was like, yes, you're so right. Yeah. But I don't know how else how else do we proceed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, it's, yeah. but that's okay. Um, people of colour is, for me, a really useful label at the, yeah. label at the moment because mm. um, I mean, I'm in a group, actually, that meets um, to talk about these kind of issues and it's a very diverse space. People, everyone is just of colour and mm. just allowing that because I, I don't think that's always in the identity 
the hard fight for for you know um, sort of inclusivity in the past, mm. it has been a very segregated perhaps mm. different movements, mm. and the idea that we can now say. Obviously, being black or mixed race is different to being Asian, to being mm. South Asian, but we can actually unite as mm. being people of colour. Mm. Um, and it's not a perfect label, but mm. it's helpful at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah keep, exactly. Everyone just keep brainstorming. Yeah. And one day, something <laughs> will emerge that we go, ah, yes. Yeah. But I think the trouble is, is also you're always acting within a white supremacist world. Yeah. So... Any kind of solidarity is going to be like contingent and messy, yeah. and I mean, maybe it's like at the end of racism when we're just people. You know, like <laughs> yeah. in the utopia arrives, we look around and go, "Hey, it's all okay." <laughs> like emerging from the cave, into the yeah. bright lights of what is? Yeah. I mean, what is that like for you as a black woman being an actor in the UK? Like, well, just broadly. Like, broadly, what is that like? Because obviously you are of mixed race, yeah. but you don't occupy, you don't occupy a white body. You are seen well, predominantly like, as occ- occupying yeah. a black body, even though you are of mixed race. Um, yeah. What is, what is that like? It's been a bit of a journey for me over the years of be- being an actor, because when I first started to be, was uh, sort of going to drama school, I, I was determined I wouldn't be defined by my skin colour. I, I, mm. I felt that I wouldn't be appropriate to who I was. I thought I would be able to... I, th- I don't know, I thought people would like not see my colour. But I- I'm not alone in thinking that, it sounds a bit bonkers, but I know a lot of people who have said, I didn't realise I was X until I went to drama school. Like, mm. oh, I didn't realise I was Greek. Mm. Until you started getting parts which apparently reflected mm. your outside, mm. you didn't realise mm. that you were going to so predominantly be viewed in that lens. So that's been interesting for me, as I briefly said, I don't... I grew up in with a white parent in a white space. Um, where did you Where did you grow up? In South London, in Brixton and yeah. Kennington. Um, I, my parents split up when I was young, and we were estranged from my father, who went back to Angola. Mm. Uh, and I was raised by my mum and my mum's white family. I have a mixed race sister, same father. Um, I have a mixed race cousin, but apart from that, we're the only brown people in our family. Mm. Um, what about like school and stuff? Well, I went to a very, very mixed school um, in Pimlico, in Pimlico, in central London. Um, a really diverse, comprehensive. Uh, my friends tended to be white, though, actually, and that was partly kind of a seemed to be like because I the journey I was taking, which was an, I pursued an academic journey, you know. And as I got through school, the people I identified with were the ones who, who also wanted to. Back in the 90s, yeah. it felt like being black or of colour brought with it a whole set of behaviours and culture that I just didn't relate to and felt excluded by and unable to participate in. It felt like there was such a narrow definition of being black. It mm-hmm. was about the music you listened to, the clothes you wore, the behaviour you exhibited. I didn't share any of that. Mm-hmm. I was just like the like, whitest little brown girl, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And it seems really naff to talk about that now because I don't think that's the same. Mm. I see young girls of colour expressing themselves and their identity in a myriad of beautiful, unique forms. Yeah. I just don't feel that was the, those options were there no, for me. No, definitely. I think I mean, the internet's done a lot. It's yeah, done a lot. And, that. like, this is why I think it's obviously it's really important to critique social media and the internet and its impact. Um, but also, like, particularly for those of us that were um, people of colour, racialized, mixed race, black, growing up in these spaces where there are not people that look like us and we're not around those people like imagine if you had had like like what there is now like instagram like twitter like imagine how like because i don't know how you feel about this but that the narrow definition of blackness was such a big part of my life in the sense that like it was so it was very lonely not because of black people projecting this narrow definition but because of the narrow definition that was projected onto 
me or my yeah. existence and I think that's my, maybe what you're yeah, referring to yeah I think it there. is I think I, yeah um, it, it just sort of felt like there was the, there was a way there was the blackness was entirely defined by these externalised markers and if you didn't and maybe it's an internal thing and maybe it's growing up in a white space. I'm not actually having the argument at black culture or No, 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 not at all. It's no. just, um, I guess it speaks of the, of the experience of being mixed race. For a lot of people, we often have, have this shared experience of that dislocation and that mm. conversation of like, am I black enough? Am mm. I, you know, what it, white and blackness just feels like this hot potato that you're navigating. Um, and I don't know yeah, if I'd had resources, I mean... I met one other person in, in my sixth form, my first ever boyfriend, because I'd never been out with, with anyone. I'd never, I didn't think I could go out with white boys, and I didn't know, I knew black boys wouldn't fancy me. Mm. And then in sixth form, this boy turned up, and he was like, his, his parents were rasters, and like, but he literally played the jazz trombone, and like, he like, <laughs> <laughs> he sounds amazing. Yeah, he amazing. Amazing. <laughs> he like wore busted up trainers like me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's silly things, yeah. it's silly coded, like fashiony things about like what you wore, and whether I was like a bit more grunge and a bit more like, yeah. Yeah, so I just think that's time to change. So anyway, long way of answering. Um, how I feel about being a black actress or actress of colour has has been this negotiation between um, how comfortable I am to feel, to, to inhabit my blackness, which I feel so much more now mm. because there's such... The conversation which is happening in the world right now, the openness of debate around identity is like, like a breath of fresh air to me I feel able to air and experience and to know the uniqueness of, of, of just because I don't have a black heritage I don't have a black culture to, well what I mean by that is I don't have say a Caribbean you know family. I don't know family or yeah. an African family to draw upon my mm-hmm. blackness feels very personal and just located within my skin yeah and and how that positions me in society I've always said like I don't feel particularly black but I'm not white yeah if you're brown you can't be white yeah you can't be yeah. It's impossible, even if you... Mm-hmm. So um, recently this has come up because I was auditioning for a play where the character was from a, um, a black British background, West Indian family, and it's a wonderful play by a writer I really admire. I kind of knew I wasn't going to get it, although I did really well in the audition. I got a recall and they talked about me for a long time and it was going back and forth, and I just thought, I know what's going to happen because I know the writer a bit. I'm not right for it because I don't authentically carry the culture that she's trying to exhibit. And right. now, I've said this to actors and they've gone, what are you talking about? You're an actor, you can do what you want. No, no, no. no. Today, in 2018, mm. we've we finally got representation into the conversation. Mm. And it, I felt very strongly, it's really mad, that it, this role was not mine to have. Mm. It should, because there are black actresses out there who have been waiting for their experience mm. to be written about this specifically. It was so specific. Mm. So specific. I mean, if I'd got it, I would have done it. You don't turn down work, particularly if you've been given that gift. But I was like, if I don't get it, I'm fine because I don't carry that story. Mm-hmm. And I want, it's time to allow people that do to have that. It's like no more plays about trans people without trans people. Or yeah. Find gay actors. They exist, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, um, a few years ago, I was thinking, oh, am I not getting as much work as I could? Because I, it seemed like there were lots of projects going on with actors that specifically seemed to have um, a, a heritage rooted in Africa or some kind of... Or they, would, they could do accents or languages, and I mm. didn't have any of that. Mm. So that seemed to be the challenge a few years ago. I don't know if that was in my head or not, but, um, yeah, it's been a negotiation. I think, though, for me... Am I talking too long? Sorry. No, not at all. <laughs> I, think, I really want to talk about class, because I think actually, actually it's been almost like the more... Pressing thing. Pressing thing yeah. for me, like, what class am I? Because yeah. that matters in acting. yeah. And, like, I have no idea. Because I was raised... My mum, single parent, with some uh, mental health issues, meant she never worked. We were on benefits. You know, free school meals, like, 
took all the loan that was on offer, like yeah, yeah, economically yeah. quite disadvantaged. But my mum's from a middle class background, and I have the influence of my grandparents who were Oxbridge graduates. And really, oh, wow, yeah, you know, so and they they'd um, retired to the south of France, like you do, you know. So I was at home. Home life was on benefits, child benefit, you know, mm. going down to get the doll that was our existence yeah, yeah, yeah. and that tenuous, kind of slightly frightened existence. But then I'd also have the input of going to see my grandparents and yeah. them in their house in France and learning French and them planning me with books to read. And so it's just that, you know, what is class? Is it culture? Is it economics? I don't know. So this is something I think, like, we think about a lot. A lot, lot yeah. Like, a lot, a lot, obviously. Because we're sociologists. <laughs> um, but I think that's really interesting because, obviously, to me, class is so much about culture and economics obviously comes into that culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, that's really interesting that you mention, like, books and, like, a foreign language that is a European language because, obviously, other ones don't count. She's joking, by the way. I'm joking. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm joking. Did I tell you? I bumped into someone at your event on Monday, and they black were, and academia. Black and academia. It was amazing. And not they, my event, leading roots. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, they we connected on Twitter, and I thought they realised that I was in the podcast, but they didn't. So um, hi for listening, Natasha, and really nice to meet you. But so I was like, she was like, oh yeah, I saw you tweeted me. And then was kind of like, who are you? And I was ah. like, I'm Saskia, you listen to our podcast. <laughs> and she was like, oh, which one are you? And I was like, the posh one. <laughs> and she was like, oh, yeah. It's <laughs> like, how could you not tell? That's so funny. But I guess if you only ever listen to someone's voice, maybe the disconnect between what someone actually looks like. Anyway. Yeah. No, but completely. That's, yeah. No, that's not, that's not off, off course. It's, we're talking about class. Yeah. And so, how yeah, we, class. How class is... Like, yeah, books, like, it's not that working class people don't read or the, like, like, the kinds of books you read or the kinds of things you learn. But then obviously, like, the experience of that kind of economic precarity stays with you. Yeah. Like, basically, the point is that class is not clear-cut. And when you're going to spend somewhere like drama school where you do end up with, like, some very, very privileged people who are in acting because they went to the fucking dragon school, which is some posh school where, like... Emma Watson and is it Tom Tom, um, Hiddleston Hiddleston that's it like all these really famous actors whose parents have a lot of money you know their extracurricular at private schools is amazing that's one of the reasons why parents send their kids to private schools you know I I went to RADA right so you know that's there's there's optimum for a lot of privilege Saskia was teaching me about RADA this afternoon because my cousin went to RADA and Chantal was like what's that and I was like oh that's where all the famous actors go to (laughs) acting school I swear to god I learn about culture every day as in (laughs) like I am from a very very working class background I'm not economically working class anymore I'm very middle class but I just don't know stuff. Yeah, but as we were just discussing, <laughs> like, I didn't do know, know the though. Cool no, well, I was going to say, you can so, do cultural yeah, exchange. Yeah, yeah, we right share, here. we, we share. share, we share. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, no, it's really... Um, Are people dickheads at RADA? <laughs> I can say, but do you know what I mean? No, I'm not even. I'm not even joking. I think people will relate to this. When I went to uni, I didn't realise there was a group of people that had all this money and that were quite arrogant and were difficult to be around. I didn't know that existed. Mm-hmm. So, like, when I say, are oh, they dickheads? I mean, those. No, people. it's a fair question. Most people <laughs> ask it because obviously there's a, um, a stereotype perception that about actors, thespians being wankers, basically, and Rod must be the, the pinnacle of wankerdom. Um, I would say that on the whole, that isn't true, because... Oh, nice. 
on the whole, I mean, there's obviously pockets. Um, just because there's something about uh, well, start. You have to you have to like get in. You have to be sort of perceived to be good enough, and it's quite it's quite a humbling experience actually. Yeah. For most people, I think you How get many in. times to do apply. Only once, actually. Only once. You could, you, you know. Apparently, the average is three times. Yeah, I can believe it. I'm on the audition panel now. I was auditioning yesterday. Oh, no way. Yeah, so I can see. I can see why. And I do get the most applications of any drama school because it's the most famous one. So a lot of people are coming with, like, really little experience mm-hmm. straight out of school or just off the street. And, it, you know, they're sort of Aww. throwing themselves at it because it's got that kind of, you know, pinnacle kind of, this is it. It's the only place I want to be. I think, no, if you want to be an actor, you just go anywhere. Just train. <laughs> I mean, within reason of good schools. But no, the people were generally quite nice. The school, though, is so conscious of the negative press it can attract by any anything. Every time they've ever put a foot wrong with somebody, they'll go, it'll be national headlines. You know, oh, like someone will write to okay. a newspaper and say that Rada gave me really bad feedback. Or this. They now bend over backwards to be really nice to people. I mean, it is... That's interesting. No drama school is perfect. Talk about white space. Sounds I mean, very institutional to me. It people is. Do, institutions do not like bad reps. No, exactly. I mean, I'm not uh, saying this. I don't know. Like, Some don't have to give a shit, like Oxbridge. Yeah. <laughs> but... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there, there's, uh, there's an element of, you know, staving off criticism about inclusivity. Well, in their student intake at the moment, they are... Pushing, 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 B-A-M-E, horrible label, but, you know, uh, students. They've actually had the first year recently, it was majority wow. students, I think, or of colour, yeah, I should yeah, say. Yeah. And I can certainly see that they're the, actually the better actors coming through as well. Like, okay, it won't yeah. benefit you in a broad audition to be posh these days, really. So that's interesting, OK. It, yeah. You know, um, but it's not perfect. I, I uh, have a, a, a buddy, it's like a, I, I mentor someone in the third year. It's like a scheme we do to like match people up with graduates. Oh, that's good. She, she's, she's an amazing, she's a woman of colour, like about, about my age actually. She went to Rada late. And um, she was talking about Rada and she went, oh yeah, I just, I gave them all the copy of um, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. <gasps> I was like, yeah, she had to give it to the whole faculty. I was just like, you know, you guys need to sort your shit out. And I was like... Good for her! I like, yeah, I was like, yeah. do you know the conversations about inclusivity, diversity at drama schools? Because I know people at other drama schools talking about it. It's so complicated. And you've just basically come in and just gone, read that and sort your shit out. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I feel like my hero. maybe every institution should have it as reading. It should be like, if you're, if you're, yeah, if you're applying to be in institutions, you have to be, yeah. you have to read René de Lodge. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, that was something actually one of the reasons I thought you'd be interested in our podcast uh, when I first met you at Bryson Pride okay. this year you mentioned that you were really nervous about stopping relaxing your hair oh yeah and you said because right. you said like something like I was really scared that I wouldn't get any work yes but yes. actually the opposite is true that is true it has been but yeah so I love talking about hair. This is great. <laughs> you know, it's, it's 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 always in there, isn't it, yeah, Chantal? It's very like it. And people yeah. don't understand when I I've got a short, very short, uh, curly mop, haircut, just completely natural hair, which is about haircut's about two years old now. You know, I first mm-hmm. cut my hair two years ago, and I remember saying to somebody who was a white friend, I was like, "Oh my god, it's just been the most amazing thing I've ever done." And they sort of laughed at me because that is a bit of a hyperbolic statement to make, but it wasn't. It was truthful. And but I just realised, oh, you don't you don't get it. Like mm-hmm. my hair and most. A lot of women of colour's hair is a site of psychic pain. Mm. Like we've struggled, it's a struggle. Mm. So I, I've you know mixed race, lots of big curly, very frizzy hair. Struggled, battled with it, and then started relaxing it. Um, after I left drama school, I wasn't. I don't know. I wasn't getting. I was getting okay roles, but obviously think you could be doing better. And I started thinking that I, I didn't look presentable enough. I should be going probably be good for like secretaries and legal assistants and. 
you know, so I was like, better have straight hair. Wait, sorry, mm-hmm. as in you were temping? Or no, as sorry, a I meant roles. Work for roles. I meant roles. And, even, roles. and even that... I knew you didn't get that. I was, like, I was just like, like yeah. you were... Being a legalist, <laughs> what are you talking about? I know that's that. Are there sound... a lot of roles for Well, the thing is, I know that sounds really bonkers. Why am I thinking that specifically? But this is another question about being a woman of colour in the industry is um, you do you did tend to see the, the, the areas where you, your casting oh, okay. was. So this is like, what there's, a, there's the whole, like, about, noble yeah. black woman thing. <laughs> yeah. Which I was talking to a, 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 a black woman, an actress, about recently. She's in her 40s now and... Um, she feels she can't get arrested, as in get a job, because um, she doesn't look motherly enough. She's not. She's too skinny, and she's in her forties, and she's like she keeps losing out to roles. And the women actresses that get it, who are her friends, are like maternal looking, and they have kind of bulk and heft because it's social workers, doc- some doctors, not many doctors, more sort of like support workers, and a few like lawyers, women of authority. Yeah, it's not, but it's like the nurturing bosom, the powerful that's magical Negroes, magical Negro, yeah. but for oh, women. Wow. Oh, maybe that's. So, so we were talking about we always talk about how women black women are always detectives in cop shows yes I had I had a year where I only auditioned for police women roles why is that I'm not even joking why because black women are tough we're not vulnerable that's the main thing the industry Uh, you can't be vulnerable and be black you have to be strong that's the story people want to want to hear that's what they want to believe that we are resilient we don't take any shit Uh, you know they want to see a black woman like you know any surprise in a role I played you know uh Oh, EastEnders. You know, I was at... at EastEnders. Top. Rebecca was in EastEnders. <laughs> EastEnders that brought up so many of us. <laughs> Rebecca was in EastEnders. <laughs> no, she was a kick-ass, a bit too kick-ass because it was domestic violence storyline. But, you know, oh my she, God. Was, yeah. well, she was perpetrating. Yeah, it was yeah. a gay, it was a gay uh, relationship, mm-hmm. same-sex relationship, and uh, I was the perpetrator of, of domestic violence. Oh, my God. So, which, which was exciting to take the role because I was like, great. Uh, I want to... Because they were saying, you know, they... No soap's ever done this. Mm. Uh, Same-sex domestic violence. Was the was your partner white? She was. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. It's interesting, isn't it? Angry black woman, maybe. Violent yeah. <laughs> black woman. Mm. Yeah, oh. you know. So you can't escape it. It's like wherever you go. So yeah, I know that sounded really weird. Like maybe I could be a legal secretary. But a few years ago, when I was a bit younger. I was like, well, probably won't play a lawyer, but I could be a woman, a girl in the background. Anyway, so I straightened my hair, and then you know. If everyone, anyone has ever straightened their hair knows after a few years you've got to stop doing it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I've got to cut it off. Is this going to be the end? But actually, no. It's been, I'll say the beginning, but it's, it's not done me any harm. But that might be because we're having a historical moment, a cultural moment where yeah. blackness is, is being celebrated. Um, it's being perceived to be profitable and marketable more mm. specifically. You know, it's like, <laughs> great. And now I, I feel almost as objectified about my hair. But like they're like, wow, I love your natural hair. I love it. It's like, not for you to I love. was thinking that in terms of um, adverts, because I know I've mentioned to you, Chantal, like, oh, I saw another where there was like a mixed race couple and you were like, oh, because mixed race is like seen as progressive or whatever. It's the acceptable face of progress, yeah. Yeah, but it's something also particular about the kids in those adverts always have like a lot of natural Beautiful hair. hair. Good hair. Good hair. Good hair. But like it's always like Loads flowing. Of it. It's just everywhere. Yeah. And it's like you don't really see kids who look like that in the street because that must be a bugger to me. Yeah, do you know what I mean? <laughs> but it's even that like, oh, yeah, it really annoys me when like how mixed is used as obviously it annoys lots of black people particularly um, dark skinned black families and rightly so because they get positioned as the black families of Britain and it just isn't true um, and with regards to the hair as you say um, there's this 
stereotype of awful stereotype of black hair being something which is hard to maintain and on the advert they like make it look like oh it's not like look at it just bouncing I don't know it just I find it really problematic I always just get so angry when people be like why don't you just have an afro oh why don't you grow an afro the first design of the afro but also that like the afro doesn't take any care they just like just let it go like you've got to comb that you've got to condition that and also yeah it's just I think in the back of my mind, and I wanted to ask you about this actually, Rebecca, is that talking about blackness being on trend and whatever at the moment, in particular with regards to, yeah, who we see on TV and on films, like um, Paul Gilroy's work on like Black Atlantic is always in the back of my head. So the fact that blackness, so blackness, so Paul Gilroy, theorist, a thinker, a teacher, um, talks about how blackness becomes used in modern day capitalism as Mm. something which is profitable and at this moment when we're seeing a lot of talk of inclusivity and diversity in all the creative industries and also higher education how permanent is this and is this just a phase is this just another moment for capital for capitalism to profit off our in quotations different really good question because because yeah. arguably there's been moments similar to this in the late 80s in the 90s um, and then it went and now it seems like another moment of this yeah. and i'm very skeptical about it because no one likes, well, if you're aware of the sort of things that I'm talking about, we do not like um, tokenism, we don't like tick boxing, we don't like to, representation is not just about putting people's face on things. Totally. Like it's yeah. about so much more. So what do you think this moment well, I, is? I, I think that's a really good point because it's something I, in the drive to get more people of colour on screen, we are seeing a perhaps over focus on black i mean mm. black diversity means tends to mean black faces mm. in the in the acting industry i find mm. that i think if i was a a, a, a south asian actor or a, mm. you know asian subcontinent actor i'd be really pissed off right now yeah i saw um <laughs> on, on, shout out to onamic onamic tweeted earlier um british south asian women are the least likely to be on tv at the moment no he didn't say least likely but he just said think, oh, you can't yeah. you don't see them on no. tv and Maybe you even raise this point. Yeah. You can't just put a character in and then make them brown in the casting room. Like, mm-hmm. they need a backstory. Every character needs backstory. Every she character needs backstory. some sort of spe- specificity. Mm-hmm. And someone really intelligent or insightful said, you know, there's different stages to this um, whole journey we're hopefully on. And their first one is colorblind casting is the first stage where you just go, everyone is allowed in. That's where we're a bit like now. Mm-hmm. We, I get casting breakdowns. That's when a casting mm-hmm. director just says, well, who we're looking for? And it will be like, character, character, ethnicity, any. That's colorblind. Basically, you just send in. Okay, it's great. I've got a few jobs out of that. Okay. That's stage one, though. Stage two is writing specifically characters from certain backgrounds mm-hmm. and not using the excuse of, well, I, I write what I know, you know, this writing what you know thing that writers And say. not using fucking stereotypes and Not using as stereotypes, well. doing some research or hiring a, a writer that doesn't need to do any research because they know, but, but, but any writer should yeah. be able to say, I'm going to write a Chinese character and that I'm going isn't to... Yeah, racist. That isn't racist. It's a human <laughs> yeah. being. So, uh, what, sorry, it's a curious way of saying, I think we're at colourblind, we're at stage one at the moment where like, there's mm. loads more well, opportunity is, it, but it won't stick if it's stereotypes it won't do, stick what, do it just, we, is it colorblind though if they are always the same roles 
like no they're all colorblind except the protagonist no I, I mean <laughs> yeah no no why. you're right no you're right I mean even that saying colorblind is not saying and that's really great no that's a, it's a massively flawed approach no no I know you're not saying but you're, you're very it, right to say that because it isn't like it isn't like United Nations rainbow yeah. family no mm. it isn't it's like selective. Keely Hall's character was not colorblind no and she would never that. be no. no a woman of color like it's not gonna happen what do you think about um the actress She's like the main character in Grey's Anatomy. Anyway, and she's like, I'm going onto set and I am looking for the diverse world around me. If I'm not seeing people on set that are of colour, this is a problem, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, like, women of colour and black women have been saying this for a long time. What do you think about that sort of thing? I think that's a great um, approach. Uh, I always slightly, you know... Jumping on like, the bandwagon. It's a bit like me, me two times up. Shut up. Oh, shut up. I'm going to make a new movement called Shut Up. Yes. <laughs> that's so good. That's so good. I mean, I'm such a bad, bad feminist. Um, no, no, there's no such thing. No, there is. No, I'm joking. I said no, that in like a kind of. Feminist. I don't think you're a bad feminist. Um, so there's no such thing as bad feminism with regards to this. No, there is no such thing as a bad feminist. I meant feminist in the inverted commas of what is perceived to be a feminist right now, which is um, someone who's like really into Times Up and Mean Too and Lean In, Sheryl Sandberg, and all that stuff. And I just can't. But I just don't get it. So, what would you, as as you're in the industry, you must know a lot of people who are in the whole like Time's Up thing. What is your perspective on it? If you feel like you can talk about that, Uh, yeah. um, I just always think like you're not the problem. Your your experiences are not the problem. Are not the issue. Like. Not to say that you haven't got a right to voice things that have happened. It's good. We have to start talking. This conversation is really necessary about just the everyday abuses of power. Mm. And, and, and just, I mean, it's utterly ridiculous when you look at the industry, the portrayal of the inequity of the portrayal of men and women just in numbers or in the types of roles. Mm-hmm. Or, and then what's going on behind the scenes. It's got to be talked about. But to see it as the pinnacle of the, of the moment is wrong. It's mm-hmm. like you go through it. You go, you know how all the shit stuff that's happened to me? Well, imagine if I was. Um, imagine the women who aren't even getting paid for the acting jobs that they're doing. Yeah. Like yes. in the low pay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ima- yeah. You know, yeah. reaching through your experience, recognising your privilege to have even been in a, a sort of A-list casting room to be perfed so on by a really, really successful and yeah. influential casting director. Like... Was, I mean, no, yeah, not saying it's a privilege to get raped by Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, but, not saying that. But um, no, but as in yeah. like, like use it's this easy moment to, to know to use to have got where you are. Yeah, yeah. it there's a there's a huge amount of privilege that comes yes. with yeah, yeah, yeah. that, um, and therefore talk about your experiences if you if you think that will help. But on the as a as a stopping off point on a journey yeah. towards mm-hmm. reaching the real. Victims or the people that really have no power. So basically, it's a lesson. Apply that to quite a lot of things, as in with people like people that are talking out about whether it be creative industries abuses, like institutions being abusive, with regards to like pay and exploitation and harassment. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Like, yeah, let's take this moment to talk about these things, but then let's use this moment where we're talking about these inequalities and these offences and actually say, but who are the most vulnerable people in this Yeah, who literally are unable to say anything. If I got my ass patted on the set of a Hollywood movie, imagine what, you know, people, people around, you know, lower down. Yeah. The the hierarchy. Imagine what is happening to them. And like... I don't know, I see it in, like, my sister's line of work. She's an opera singer. And it's kind of similar to acting, but it seems to be, like, even fewer opportunities to be paid and, like, even less kind of, like, you know, and obviously, again, there's a huge amount of privilege that goes into being an opera singer. 
Um, but yeah, the abuse that go on in that industry, and no one's ever going to give a shit because it's mm-hmm. opera singing, and like the people who go and see it are incredibly privileged people, and they're just like, like the way it's funded is basically like rich men pay pretty young women to sing mm-hmm. for them, like it's really it's quite disturbing, mm-hmm. and then. Oh, yeah, so I don't know. I guess acting's bigger, so... But, yeah, I think um, my... Where, I, where, where it kind of sticks in my craw a bit is just the, the centralising of experiences that are privileged in the first place. Yes. And, yeah. and the, the lack of reach down. And I know they attempt... And this is the American movement. They attempted to do that by bringing those, their guests along. Did you see that Michelle Williams came to yeah. the Oscars with the original the, yeah, founder yeah. of the yeah. Me Too? yeah. Yeah, 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 that yeah, one, hashtag, isn't it? That yeah, hashtag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is wonderful. I mean, it was still really problematic. Yeah. This, these black plus ones yeah. being brought in. <laughs> we, right, by Reese Witherspoon, yeah. It was still like, <laughs> yeah. wow. Yeah. And then in Hollywood, which is not the world I'm really in, but I, you know, um, just, I mean, it said it already that the Golden Globes, they were all in tuxedos and mm. bringing their activist friends. And the Oscars, three months later, they were like, full on glam. Because yeah, they were like, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, feminism, but like, don't be silly, it's the Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not gonna, like, I'll not wear a, like, a dress, like yeah. a gorgeous dress at the Oscars. Yeah. I was like, think of all the advertising wow. opportunities. Yeah. Because the kind of, um, well, I don't know what was an adjective for it, but you know, the fact that women in the industry are considered to be kind of trinkets, you've got to be sparkly yeah. and yes. shiny. No, and, but this is what, sorry, you know. this is related to my sister. She, um, she accidentally got copied in on an email where someone described her as ornamental. And that's what I mean, like, rich men paying pretty women to sing because they want to look at them and lust over them. And, like, there is an element of acting, yeah. which... Well, yeah, I had experiences at drama school as we were doing our third year, which uh, is basically, you, instead of training to be an actor now, you're doing performances, the public are coming to see them, the agents are coming to see you. Uh, it's a kind of, the whole year is like one big audition to, like, try and get a career. It's awful, actually. Because oh it suddenly God. stops being about that art. That sounds so art traumatic. It is traumatic. Yeah. It took me ages to get over it. And I, I actually yeah. didn't do badly out of the experience. I got an agent. I moved on. I, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's horrible because suddenly for like a year, you're just like, oh, you know, you just feel like this is your crunch time. Yeah. You know, sink or swim. And at RADA, because the pinnacle is so high, like people leave and become movie stars like instantly or, you know, go into West End theatres. You think that's normal. It took me about five or six years to realise that it's not normal. It's just, <laughs> normal is just about. being like a jobbing actor and making it through. Right. Normal's just like, mm. it's just staying in the game. Anyway, <laughs> but there were things that the Academy did back then which I don't think they do now, which I felt were they, they were trying to sort of train us into what it's like to be an actor or an actress. We have gala dinners, like any institution, it's funded by people. There are rich white men, you know, pouring money into mm. RADA. And we once had to do this thing where um, after a performance of something, we had to go into one of the spaces, they dressed it up, there were like tables everywhere. And one of the sponsors is was a jewellery company called Boodles. We were basically asked to wear Boodles jewellery and talk to this other group of sponsors that had oh come in. God. So basically... You the, were an advertisement. Yeah. Young women. And I don't think the Academy would ever do this again. I mean, I really that would be all over social media. Yeah, now. Because, yeah, this is yeah. like 2007, <laughs> 8, so no one, oh, there was okay, no Twitter... Yeah. Yeah, but wearing necklaces, wearing jewels, we had to, you know, chat, not chat up, but like these conversations are always a bit weird. You know, people come and see plays because it's like a corporate package and they're, you know, they get, they're like, they've got dinner and a play at RADA and they've that paid a thousand pounds for that. Oh, they wow. paid some enough money to like you know do that's something. So and then we had to be like oh hey oh, necklace. Oh, oh, like, young women you know it was so oh. that 
reminds me of it's not the same but it's got similar sort of tendencies I don't think I've actually spoke about this on the podcast before but I used to work at Wimbledon in the Debentures Lounge really? which is where all the extremely wealthy yeah, what's the celebrities they pay like a membership of like 50 grand a year to, I think it's more than that actually to have like basically a box at Wimbledon and I used to serve them oh and it would be all the like women um, the younger women that would be like doing the table service that would be that would be chosen to go into that area mm-hmm. to serve people and it was so like now I look back on it there was so many things that were problematic I experienced a lot of racism there as well like direct racism really? from old white men saying they didn't want to be served by an n-word um, what? <laughs> but it reminds me of that like oh. whole select like that's whole selection yeah thing and, and, and how sometimes your ethnicity is a pro and sometimes it's a con so, yeah, 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 so yeah. sometimes it's like no we, we want to market ourselves as whatever this like diverse and, and obviously there's exoticism that comes yeah with, yeah yeah you know like all of that it's all very pretty disturbing to be honest and it's only it's sort of when you have moments like this and you look back and you're like god that was just that was not very nice no oh so many things was oh, it even well paid um, it was all right paid and we used to get obviously lots of tips. So okay. that funded one of my summers when I was at university, oh, which was good. Um, <laughs> and like considering I had absolutely no money at that point well, as well, like it was... You did what you... When you're young, you do what you need to do. But oh, also yeah, I yeah. think the world was a more... We just weren't questioning this stuff. No. I think you would now. And oh, this was like... joking? I was. Oh, yeah. I used you, to get into you were, a huge fight. When well, I went to yeah. M&S as an 18-year-old, I'd get into ma- like stacking sandwiches at six in the morning. Yeah, my mum went, <laughs> my mum was like less open to my argumentative nature at the time. She went, will you just stop causing arguments with everyone? You don't have to, not, not everything has to be an argument. I was like, I can't believe you're not backing me on this. <laughs> but I don't know though, because I don't think, I don't think, I think there's a reason why I didn't really discover feminism until later on, um, even like after two degrees I still hadn't really discovered it because I don't think it had spoken to me I don't think it had found me I don't think it I don't think the main feminist texts were speaking of my experiences which are very much intertwined with issues of yeah in quotations race so I don't think it's but I think obviously now we're very much very much aware of it but there were were other people that were aware of it at that time I'm not necessarily saying that's just you Saskia Um, I was the only um, feminist in my school and it was a girls school like yeah. feminism was not cool when I was a teenager, which is crazy to think. So not like this is like ten years ago. Yeah, like it was not cool to be. A yeah, I, I think I remember that moment because yeah. I was quite shocked by it when I realised that younger girls were not calling themselves feminists. Because yeah. when I was growing up, it was sort of automatic if you yeah. had anything about you at all. If you had a, a really? thinking brain. I don't know if it meant that much. We weren't like you know we weren't yeah. doing much with it. But it was like yeah, what's like when I was growing up. You, this might be very specific to me, but I don't know. I mean, getting married wasn't a thing. Yeah. Most people I knew whose parents were married didn't mean their children were going to. We, we thought that you were going to mm-hmm. like, live with someone. or And suddenly about like 10, 15 years ago, it became this whole thing. Yeah. People were getting married like... Sorry, I know you're engaged. Sorry. No, no, no. I just mean like, I just mean like you know, as an yeah, automatic... Yeah, yeah. Which I think, I think actually was the rise of social media and just like the kind of... Um, Showing what you're doing. But I think all these Instagram. things are kind of phases as well. Like, I think you don't want to do what your parents' generation did. I don't know, like, they always yeah. talk about that with, like, um, alcoholic drinks. Like, 
no one in my parents' generation drank gin and tonics because it was like an old person thing to do. And then our generation is like, gin and tonic! Gin and tonic! Genius! Or like sherry has come back in. Is it? Who's drinking sherry? Oh, I don't know. I've seen it in like Have bars you? and stuff. Really? Maybe it's just kind of, in my head. No, there's a sort of... <laughs> my nan um, likes sherry. What do you call it? Um, connoisseur culture thing. Yeah. Yeah. They've got to be experts, haven't they? They can't yeah. just drink beer. They've got to drink craft beer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, These are hipster like, wankers. Yeah, hipster yeah. Although is it hipster if Weatherspoons do it? Weatherspoons do avocado on toast now, guys. Like, is avocado on toast dead? <laughs> Weatherspoons? Yeah, had on genuine. Wow. And, like, all their beer is craft beer. Two, two seventy nine, guys. No, I but if you drink craft beer in Weatherspoons, that's okay. Is it? Yeah. I think so. Because there's a bar. Weatherspoons made me. There's a bar like, near I, me called Oh, no, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like a room. It's like a real hipster joint. It's, a, it's basically a glass room with loads of fridges, with loads of hundreds of different beers, and, like, just lonely men with beards sitting there, sort of sipping this beer. Like, taking all the kind of conviviality out of drinking yeah, and just making yeah, yeah. it. It's really, like, anal... Yeah, dry, dry pursuit. Oh, you know what yeah. that makes me think. And they and they collect bikes as well. Yeah, they collect bikes. They're, they're really <laughs> on everything. It's like no, when they bike. It's not just that they collect bikes. It's like they have to have exactly the right equipment. Yeah. If they see you with the wrong equipment, they'll go. Oh, you haven't thought about this, this, this. It's like yeah, that's why women don't cycle. Yeah, <laughs> People like you. It's like everything. It's like the food culture as well. Like mm. you know started off like we all love going out to eat now and then it's like people get so obsessive about and it's like that but you know what the drink thing 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 is an interesting one because Mm. I'm sure there's like a sociology of like drinking like alcohol like what people drink I'm sure I remember listening to this thing which someone was saying like men drink things that women don't drink so cocktails were originally drunk by men and then when women started drinking cocktails men Mm. stopped drinking cocktails like beer was a man thing yeah. And then, like, now whiskey's a man thing, but gradually women are drinking more and more men. whiskey. Poor men. But in a way, yeah. maybe that's what the connoisseur culture thing is doing, is, like, yeah. reclaiming, like, the male space yeah. of beer. It's like, well, women, you can have a pint, but is it this, like, homebrewed, like, se thirsty? And because women like, have got so yeah. many better things to talk about, <laughs> exactly. we just never like, catch up. Because okay, we're yeah. just not interested. Or, like, <laughs> coffee, you know? Like, they do it about coffee as well. Like, oh, oh well, you know, this God. comes from this, like, very specific tree and like, the South American village. And you're like, yeah, okay, it's a cup of coffee. Basically an amphetamine, let's face it. I mean, I just... I'm really privileged. I have secure, affordable housing in Zone 2. Wow. Which is is an amazing thing. It's a life-changing thing. Um, And I joined a housing cooperative, which uh, is a a very old-fashioned notion, the idea that people collectively own property. The money to buy the property was was given in grants by the government from between, like, 1976 and about 1980-something, before they stopped doing that. Um, and the co-op gradually grew, um, and the tenants and the members adapted houses, made flats, and it's set up for originally for single people. Comes from a model when you couldn't get on the housing list if you were a single person. All, well, yeah, all council housing was going to families, and so it was really? felt back in the day that you were dis- discriminated against. Just, just falling through the cracks if you were a single person. Right. So the model for the co-op was set up to house single people. Well, also, that must have meant terrible things. If you were, like, in a domestic... Like, in a victim of domestic abuse and you can't get on the housing list if you're single... Well, exactly. That, like, just traps you in a relationship. Yeah. That's horrendous. So, um... And because there's a strong gay and lesbian um, sort of culture, culture, I don't know, group underpinning the co-op and it was very much um, set up in a way to address the needs of a very... Um, Marginalised Marginalised group. Um, Not that all gay people are single, but... um, (laughs) I mean, as in not having children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But back then it was more likely, actually. It was more of a a, a political and lifestyle 
choice as well yeah. to, to, to not have children. Mm-hmm. To, anyway. But basically, in a nutshell, we, we still exist. Um, we do have families now because we, we've adapted large properties. Um, but it's owned and run by its members. Well, we all put a pound in. And then yeah, and you get affordable rent, and the I the model a pound yeah a pound. But so what are the what are the criteria? To be from have a strong connection to Lambeth because uh, the housing cops in Brixton. So to, I've lived or worked there for a long time. To be on a low income, which I think is currently set at like thirty or forty thousand, um, which isn't that low really. I guess it depends <laughs> how many dependents you have. But exactly. Yeah. Um, though bearing in mind that social housing in its purity wasn't necessarily set up to help the poorest of the poor. Social housing was just for people, just ordinary people. You could be a professional and live in social housing. Yeah. That was the whole dream. It's hard to remember it now. Yeah. Um, also to have, uh, I had to give a record of some acti- um, volunteer work or community activities. We're looking for kind of like people with activists. Mm. And to have a severe housing need. So and that can be anything from being like legally homeless to living in a pre- any sort of precarious situation like um, having no fixed abode. Living with an ex-partner is one of our entry criteria oh. as well to get people out of relationships. Um, oh, living with in uh, very expensive rent. That's pretty much everyone. <laughs> the whole of London. <laughs> the whole of London. Of yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, um, um, when we open the membership, which doesn't happen very often, it, we we don't open it in the way that we'd like. We have to sort of keep it quite small. We we just around the network of people to inform us about people that might be worthy applicants, and then mm. they sift through. Um, we wouldn't be able to sort of put it in a newspaper because we'd be inundated. We wouldn't be able to handle that many applications and. In some senses, cults rely on being kept small, which is great when there's loads of them. Now there's not many. It feels a bit like, well, I'm certainly very conscious of how privileged we are. Mm. and I. Uh, so how many people are housed by your cult? We've got um, nearly 100 100 people. 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 God, so it's really small. Yeah, nearly 100 mm. members. Yeah, so it's tiny. And actually, we're like, for the type of what you call fully mutual, which basically means we own everything, because some cults are set up in conjunction with local authorities and they don't really own, it's like... Um, mm. even now they actually the co-ops being set up more recently might have shared ownership elements to them as well which mm. we don't want we don't want any private ownership mm. uh, at all but that might be the only way co-ops can exist now mm. um, but our sort of old fashioned 1976 model because that's when they did some le- legislation um, there's about 100 or so left in the country and 90 members for London's pretty big there's loads in Merseyside which are quite really there's really strong social housing obviously in cooperative mm. um uh, scene in Merseyside, um, but yeah, it's um, it's an it's an odd thing. It's a very because like I say, it's a very insular thing. It just concerns a hundred people. I'm very active in it. I'm the chair. I'm involved in trying to shape it up, shape up our governance. Um, make sure that our committees and subcommittees oversee all the work running properly, but also to think strategically about ultimately how to just get as many more people in as possible, and that involves addressing some issues in the co-op like under occupancy. So we have people that moved into large properties. Maybe they had children or maybe they lived in a shared mm-hmm. thingy. Those households broke up, but they stayed in like a four-bedroom property. <gasps> Just one person? Yeah, we got a couple of those. Oh, that's bad. Oh, yeah, it makes me think of... Um, so the Catholic Church has loads of property in London. Mm. Like loads and really? loads of property. Because back in the day, there were a lot of nuns and there were a lot of priests and they needed housing. So the Catholic Church bought up all this property, probably relatively cheaply as well. And now there aren't that many nuns, there aren't that many priests. There are a lot of people living in very big houses, like six bedroom house with three nuns in it. And you're like, there's a housing crisis. Why are you all like... Yeah, yeah. it's interesting but, how people can... Like, we were talking about this recently. We've got a couple of members who consider themselves staunch socialists <laughs> and activists still. But yet, like, one in particular is under-occupying in a three-bedroom house. Uh, and we're like, it's amazing how he can just 
like a colossus bestride these two completely opposing, <laughs> you know, points of view. And it's like well, we've got this complicated. This is, this is <laughs> what we discover, I think, a lot in higher education. Mm. Cough, cough, sociologists. Okay. <laughs> um, carry on. No, 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 no. You're so, <laughs> no, so right. Just no. It's just like a big thing. Like academics. I think academic academia attracts a lot of narcissists mm. and a lot of people. Like, sociology, like, in a way, it's a form of, like, capital to be, like, I'm really lefty, I'm really radical, blah, blah, blah. But then a lot of people who say those things then don't practice it. And, like, yeah, you get... It can get really underhand and quite nasty. Well, this is what I'm... Not to sort of have a bitch fest about my co-op, but but, but interestingly enough, um, in a way that you just described this cult capital of, like, um, social... You know, academia... Living in Brixton, and a lot of these people do have activist pasts and they consider themselves like the front line of sort of like... Because Brixton is like, oh, an amazing place, which is changing, but it really is one of the most important places in the whole of UK, I believe. Mm. It's a front line of so many things we take for granted today. Like, black feminism began in Brixton. Like, yeah. literally two doors to my co-op. My co-op yeah. building was was a, a, a really important site. Um, we had, like, the Race Today Collective, the Save Our Bookshop. Anyway. But, yeah, so these people do have an entitlement to say, like, hey, we fought some battles. We were on those yeah, streets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, now the world around them has shifted and they're out of touch with... Uh, well, they've just not been active, not been activists, not been... So, so in terms of the housing, staying, you know, behind their closed doors in their safe, secure, low-rent-paying place and not feeling that urgency to address the current housing crisis, which in its own way is actually almost worse because I was trying to explain this I was like back in the day people like were, were having to squat if they couldn't have anywhere to live and like and back in the 80s those people were out of work but there were avenues to, to, to exist in London yeah now you can't exist in London if you don't have any money you're gone <laughs> yeah and if you've lived here all your life like your... the WI like YMCA like all these places that you don't have like, like a hostel, a, a you hostel. could go and yeah, somehow yeah, help yeah. you. Sorry, yeah. yeah, spaces yeah. you could go. Like you're not um, destitute, and you're not um, sort of like, severely limited by like you're not in like total drug and alcoholism. You know, you're you're sort of just poor. Yeah, there's no space for you anymore. Yeah, yeah. we've talked about this on the podcast before that like homelessness, the primary cause of homelessness now is not being able to pay rent. Yeah. And how many homeless people are there again now, Saskia? Uh, we were well, there was about a Guardian article saying that it was uh, 320,000 homeless people in the UK today. There's something like, and I know I've said this on the podcast before, so I'm probably going to give like a different figure to what I've said, but I think it's something like 10,000 homeless people in West, in the borough of Westminster. Yeah, so that's, that's not yeah, rough outrageous. sleepers, that is people yeah, in precarious people. accommodation. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, they've got yeah. one of the highest number of rough sleepers as yeah. well, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's yeah. horrific. It it. <laughs> Sorry, just when it, we, stats like that connected to austerity just make me just make my mind sort of <laughs> boggle. And it's increased like something because, like four percent each year yeah. over the past however many years. Mm. Like since yeah. twenty ten. Is it since twenty ten? Yeah. Well, since austerity. What is since price? austerity? <laughs> it's pretty heartbreaking to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so cooperatives are important. Cooperatives are important. So um, yeah, what role do you think, given that they are small and the challenges in setting up? kind of shared ownership of properties like that, what role do you think cooperatives can play in something like a housing crisis? Good question. I mean, I suppose, um, because we... It's difficult because we've been set up on this model, which won't exist again. Yeah. Um, 
Because when our cart works well, and it does work well in many ways, um, just the model for living in a kind of um, a, co- a co-living space. So mm-hmm. we have our independent flats and houses, but we have a lot of um, opportunities to cross into each other's lives. Like we're currently setting up a welfare committee because so many of the couple are ageing and, and di- dying or, or mm-hmm. getting those issues that come with middle-aged el- to elderly. Mm-hmm. Well, I, well, we're not a social service. We can't take that burden on ourselves, but we can do something which is half structural, half sort of institutionalised and half just auth- about authentic relationships to kind of knit us together and, mm-hmm. and pick up the slack. Um, so it's not, it's a bit, it might sound a bit woolly, but it's just about being nice to each other and actually yeah. cooperating. And knowing, knowing your neighbours, I know that's like, I hate when people say Londoners don't know their neighbours, but it's like, well, actually, some of us do. Some of us do, some of us really, really do. Some of us don't want to. I hate my neighbours. <laughs> Sorry, John, you're great. Um, but this lives in of- Islington. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of different kinds of people live in Islington. Yes, um, <laughs> no, it's interesting what you're saying because it makes me think of um, shout out to my driving instructor Lynn, who I absolutely love, and she lives in um, a block of flats by Old Street, which obviously has undergone very rapid change over the past. Like I used to go past it on the bus every day on my way to school, go through Old Street roundabout. Um, you cannot imagine what it looked like 15 years ago. But anyway, so she also, you know, like with the selling off of council housing, there's a situation where she's in the council house. Lots of people are in, either own their flats or renting privately. And she was just like, and like the stuff she tells me about that go on in that block of flats in terms of the way the council treat them, if their water supply is cut off for whatever reason because they screw up or like she said, like it's a, quite a tall block and like, there were four lifts and three of them were out of action and they got like a letter from the council being like, can you not use the lift for unnecessary journeys? And she's like, <gasps> what, getting to the 23rd floor in the lift? Is that an unnecessary, like, what the Crazy. fuck? Wow. There were like old people here, there are people with push, like stuff like that. And she was like, you don't know what it is to be a second class citizen until you try living in council housing in London. Like, and I'm sure in lots of parts of the country. And then she said like, it was really awkward. So they don't have a tenants and residents association at the moment. She said that when they used to have one, it would be really uncomfortable because you get some people who have bought their flats mm. and some people who are council tenants and, like, these kind of, like, irreconcilable, like... I know, and that's the mm. thing, it's like, yeah, just because you live in social housing doesn't mean you're going to get along and know your neighbours and everything will be hunky-dory, but, like... But the model of, basically, we don't, we don't always all get along. There's lots of people, you know who have a lot of, there's very different, specs, broad spectrum of people, but we have to find a way to cooperate. Yeah. And that's the thing. And That's the difference. There's these like seven cooperative principles all co-ops uh, mobilise around and it's, you know, open membership, democratic control and economic participation or something. But basically, they, they just draw out a framework for human beings to, yeah, to share spaces. And as a tool of education, that's really powerful. I mean, co- oh, the other one, yeah, one of their principles is to educate the members either educate them like they were set up by um cooperatives were invented in rochdale in the 1870 something you know by some factory workers that wanted to take back some control and open little shops and sell themselves their own goods but also then to, to build a school and make sure everyone had yeah. education but then also to educate people about being in a co-op and to spread the word of co-ops so it's it's like, really interesting because it's yeah. because there's also um, I've just remembered what it's called now. There's also guardianships, isn't there? There are. So that's slightly different. What mm. do you think of those? I, I'm not a fan of guardianships. Okay. What is a guardianship? Okay. Well, I'll just give context to my life as well. Is that I 
grew up in um, a squat. Uh, we lived in a squat before we went into official social housing. So mm. I lived in a squatted community in Kenya. So can you talk about what a squat is? Because they don't really exist They anymore. don't exist anymore. So back in the um, 70s and 80s, there was so much disused housing across the whole of the country, but particularly in London. Why? Local authorities were going bust. Um, People would like to say the Labour government mismanaged the finances terribly. And, um, Basically, it was an economic downturn. Economic downturn. I yeah. think probably OPEC, you know, oil crisis stuff. But anyway, um, there was so <laughs> much disused property that, and so much unemployment um, and also a counterculture based around like radical sort of free thinking and anti-establishment and anti-authoritarianism mm. that people would... Um, break into disused properties and make homes in them. Um, it gets a bit of a bad rep these days because people want to think of squatting about uh, as being about like destroying a property, like having mm. a rave in a in a warehouse. Mm. It's like no, people made homes. Mm. Yeah. So um, my how do you? One thing I've mm. always I've always thought about is how do you heat a squat? You get the gas on. What happens is once you're in the property, yeah, mate, you can uh, make you can turn anything squat, on if you want. But, squat, but you also <laughs> no, but as in don't the gas company then go? You can't. No, squatters' rights meant once you'd gained entry without any show of forced entry. So there's a whole there's a thing called the squatters' handbook, which yeah. will explain how yeah. to break into a squat without looking like you'd broken into it. Once you put the rates on, it, squatters pay their way. You don't get a free house. You pay. Bearing in mind that. 20, 30 years ago, your, the house, the market value could have been £3,000, yeah. not 300 or 3 million, <laughs> right? You paid your council tax. Yeah. It wasn't council tax. It was pre-poll tax. Mm. <laughs> um, well, there was no such thing as council tax. Not yeah, that's the, that's before, the yeah, the poll, ta- poll, poll tax, tax came in. poll tax council tax. Yeah. What? Yeah. The <laughs> so how did local councils fund themselves? Um, I don't know, probably some kind of... Uh, there must have been something, but the actual specific thing called the council tax was a new thing. and it, The poll tax, which we had massive rights. Right, yeah, which, yeah. I know which, about the poll tax Yeah, rights. you know about yeah. that. Um, they then transformed it to council tax. I don't know, but you paid whatever rate you needed to in gas and electric and everything. Yeah, you lived okay. there. Yeah. So it's not living for free. This is relevant because my uncle uh, was a long-term squatter and he eventually got ownership of a house in mm. Brixton because he squatted it with some friends for continuously for 10 years. And the point being that in the old English law... Ownership of a property was defined by either a market value you paid for it mm. or occupancy. Mm. So that was enshrined in a law. So this idea that you buy houses, it's like, well, basically it's just like, give me £100,000 or live in it for mm. 10 years. Like, that was an equal exchange mm. because actually no one owns anything. Everything belongs to the crown. So, yeah. like, the, these new anti-squatting laws, I'm not a legal, I'm not at mm. all brain, but in some ways, and we have no constitution, so it's kind of, that's useful, but in some ways go against a very mm. ancient... Um, set of land tenants mm. in this country to say that no one really owns anything. You're only borrowing it. Mm. Because it's all based on like precedent and stuff. Yeah. It's not codified anywhere, mm. but then they codified yeah. it presumably in order to stop people. I guess they did, yeah. But yeah, so um, <laughs> I, I grew up in a squatted community and um, a lot of my family members and, you know, squatting is kind of part of what we did. And then eventually we moved to social housing because it was a bit too precarious and not even precarious. Well, it was in a way because they actually eventually evicted the whole street and my mum decided to take a social housing flat within like a housing association and move on. Um, but, so my attitude to guardianships, I just feel like I have a bit of like... Oh, so sorry, guardianship it. is yeah. a thing. Yeah, so, yeah, okay. For me, and I had friends who started doing this when it first became a thing, I was like, what are you doing? Squatting is a political act which defies the wastage of resources, right? Guardianships is about a private owner taking a property, wasting it, and then you moving in tenants and not giving them a decent place to live. Guardian flats, mm. the ones I've heard of anyway. They're not good. They're not good. And mm. they're not cheap. No. Mm. no they're not cheap. cheap. Given the rents, like, you know, I remember a few years ago people were paying like nearly £500 a month to live in an in, a, in an old school with mm-hmm. like no proper heat. But they think the people that a lot of the people, so I, so yeah, 
I know someone that works within a guardianship organisation and they think, so, because obviously there's quite a few organisations that are doing guardianships, they think they're doing something quite radical yeah. and lefty. But yeah, I disagree. Talk, yeah, I think I might be more on your it's way. It's commercialising something that used yeah. to just be like about the right to housing. Yeah. So yeah, so I know people who were living, a couple who were living in Bloomsbury, which okay, to live as a couple hell. in a flat in Bloom, Bloomsbury they would have been paying a lot more money than they so they're paying like £500 each but like yeah living in a flat where there's no cooker there's no like there were no there were no like facilities to do and given that like most places have like washing machines there was nothing like that yeah. they literally had a microwave and a sink so the, te- the landlord has absolved itself of all responsibilities yeah. towards the tenant and you're the, not allowed to change anything you're not allowed to change that. anything and also this is actually my major point is that so much of squatting was actually about um, families. It gets this kind of like single male sort of aggressive rap. But really, in fact, the squatting in Brixton was started by black women on Railton Road. Yeah. Olive Morris, if you haven't covered her, you should yeah. dig through. But she was um, a pioneering squatter in Brixton. And it was about getting black women, usually single women with, with children, into a secure accommodation. Mm. So the thing about guardianship is... because they were excluded by the welfare state. Because they were excluded by the welfare state, exactly. And facing discrimination still in the 80s from landlords, yeah. you know, very hard to get housing so squatting was a, an act of survival it's amazing um, how that gets turned into some kind of like oh, radical lefties rah, 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 a pr- like, an exercise in privilege yeah. which you know I'm, I'm I can be on the fence with this as well because having examined my you know rather dysfunctional upbringing and this kind of like oh Shangri-La of like you know anti-authoritarianism I'm like a lot of you people would just Fucking suburban kids. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so much of that punk uh, yeah, anger yeah, yeah. was really about people coming up from the suburbs just yeah, railing yeah. against yeah. all the things that they felt had stifled their creativity, like central heating. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> I'm talking about my mum now. Toilet. She, like, <laughs> making my kid- Oh my God, I can't believe my mum made me go to Godolphin Anatomy in like get A-levels. And I can't believe we had central heating. And I can't believe there was like food yeah. on the table. She was like, I'm not going to do any of that for you because that's freedom. <laughs> You were like, like cold and starving. Okay, and like, I've got another question. I know, yeah. I know we're going, I've got another question, and it's to do with housing associations. Yeah, right. Oh, Talk to me about housing Okay, so I've got a little bit of insight because because of my role in the co-op, I decided to try and get some training. So I went to a couple of conferences. Oh, which ones? Oh, God, I went to one up in the north, which was about... It was actually for housing managers, so I was a bit out of place there in a way, but it was useful. Mm-hmm. What I learned there was that housing associations have... Um, you know, they've all merged now. They've all become these superstructures. Like, some of them are, like, vast. They've got, like, a million units or something. Because what? Say, like, Family yeah. Mosaic that my mum lives in doesn't exist. It's now part of Peabody, which was yes. already huge. Yes. Peabody now covers, like, a third of the... Basically, yeah. the, the execs at the top of these housing associations, because of all the issues of getting people to pay their rents, basically just went, look, should we just all club... It's all about them basically getting bigger salaries because they run bigger organisations. Nice. And basically streamlining housing down to, like, four megaliths. Right, so there's that... Second thing I learned was that um, there had been this move towards automisation, like um, to try and cut costs. They pulled back on what you call frontline housing officers, actually people with a patch that go around, knock on your door if you haven't paid your rent. Mm-hmm. Got rid of them, were like, call this number, press one if you haven't paid your rent. And mm-hmm. That doesn't work because people don't pay their rent, mm-hmm. right? Um, <laughs> and all the issues are why they're not paying their rent as well. Um, so they've gone back. Cause I was at this conference. Surely people don't pay their rent because they don't have the money. There's that, but there's also, there is, it's true, there is something like when you feel like you're, when you feel dis, disconnected. disconnected from your landlord mm. and from, and, and they might have good reason to be, like maybe yeah, they're not yeah. running your property that well, but rent retentions go up when you have a personal connection. Uh, too. Okay, okay. So basically the whole thing was that we, there is an economic argument for bringing back frontline 
housing officers mm-hmm. and all these people in the room were all frontline, had, had a patch. Mm-hmm. And they were being explained to why they're being so invested in at the moment. Mm. Because tenant welfare in- improves because they can sit at someone's kitchen table and c- talk through their debts. Mm. Like, oh, we have a tiny co-op, but we have a housing officer who, does it, who knows each tenant's lives intimately. And Are they paid? Yeah, we pay her. Wow. Yeah. And she can go in. I mean, it's not, that's not like her job description, but that no, is what it ends up being. Yeah. For someone you can talk to Glenda, mm. she knows you've gone through the divorce. She yeah. knows about that. Yeah. And, yeah. and you can like work with her and get, she can get really good rent agreements. Mm. You know, if someone's okay, really falling in the But basically, it, it was all under the umbrella of how do we make more money. Uh, and the other thing was because of various, you know, economic situations, how social housing is no longer for the most needy. They, um, housing officer told me that when you get when she gets a void, a flat that's empty, she's got a list of people on the housing list. The first ten usually people don't pass a credit check. Mm. Like you have to pass a credit check, which means a sound obviously financial history, no debt, no black marks, no red flags, wait, all that wait, stuff. Wait, wait, wait. All that so stuff. who houses those people? Nobody. That's Nobody. the homeless people you're just talking about. Yeah. That's where they're coming from. Because social housing is no longer for needy people. It if can't. I, I would be exactly the same. So if yeah. something happened to my partner and I had to go into social housing, which I definitely would have to, I would, because of my background and having so much debt and never... Ha- like, mm-hmm. I would... I would be homeless. Yeah. Well, like, even, was, sorry, because student debt doesn't student, count, but you had to take out more debt. More debt, um, overdrafts. Yeah. Like, just, all that like it's, ordinary debt yeah, yeah, yeah. that people yeah, yeah, have yeah, yeah. to survive that's your life. Living, yeah, surviving <laughs> stuff. Poor credit, like, score, yeah. Yeah, poor credit score, which is like just a fact of life, now would discount you. I wouldn't say like, in, I'm not going to say blanket discount you, but it makes it much more difficult. Mm-hmm. And obviously these are precarious often families who have more than poor credit. They might have had some really bad yeah. like stuff go on. They can't get access to that housing because the social housing associations are just bottom line driven, mm-hmm. basically. That's so... So that's what I learned. And I was like, wow, okay. Yeah, who's housing these I people? had the most annoying conversation with someone. Because for a while, well, it might not be, like, the most needy people who go into social housing, but it's certainly the case that, like, as you said, um, social housing used to be for everybody. And obviously the people who benefit from it most are the people who have money but can still go into social housing. But, yeah, it used to be, like, you know, a housing estate might have quite a mixed group of people of it yeah. because... Yeah, like it's not just people who can't afford private renting. Whereas now, because there's less social housing and like a greater demand, um, it is it does tend to be poorer people, yeah. although not people with the worst credit scores, mm, mm. Um, who go into social housing. So mm. I was like, you know, and that's not good because mm. you end up with like groups of people who are in quite desperate situations, all living in one place, yeah. and then it becomes like segregation. Yeah. And the person I was talking to went. Well, that's not true because Bob Crow lived in social housing and he was earning like £100,000 a year. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like... Don't open your mouth. It's just such an annoying thing to say, but that is one of the most... Sorry, this is just pet peeve. Yeah. One of the most annoying things about being a sociologist is when you've like read about something and you've done some research and like you're like, I do actually kind of know what I'm talking about. And people go, yeah, but my mum told me this. And you're like... It's true. It's in, oh god, that's so sad. That's so. Yeah. That is who the homeless people are. Yeah, and that is who. That's like me and my mum. That's what would have happened to mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. So what did happen with your housing when you went to from Ken? When I was younger, when it was just me and my mum, we had left my dad, who was in Upper Captain, and we'd gone to Strood in Ken Medway, 
and we lived in Hancock Close, which was a housing estate of, of social housing. And like thinking about it now, like that was quite a big house that we lived in, but everyone was living in social housing. There were also couples as well as families. It's very like, as you say, like convivial living. Um, and then we lived on Mountbatten Avenue. We lived between social housing. But okay. before, sorry, you, you asked me what happened. So before my mum managed to get back to Kent, we lived in um, the WI, we lived mm. in the YMCA. In Islington. We in, in Islington. Wow. We lived in a squat at one point as well. Did you? And then, yeah, because you don't have, you just like my mum was, go. my mum was a window dresser for Harrods, but like that was still like not much money and she mm. wasn't working at this point as well. Yeah, like there's, there's absolutely no way we would have survived um, yeah, no, you would no, not have existed yeah. in London. No. And, yeah. like, yeah, that's what happens to people is you might not have been on the street, but you would have been sofa surfing or you would have been in a hostel yeah. or, yeah. I just want to tell one, I don't, I don't know, this is kind of a segue, but it's just something that really got on my nerves at a co-op conference I went to where they had a government, uh, as a civil servant, delivering, uh, talking about the government's housing white paper. I've, I've seen, I bet but that was a bundle of it was just nonsense, basically. Mm. Um, and what she said, um, she because because it happened in May. Oh yeah, and Grenfell was okay. Last, last, last yeah. but everyone was because it's a housing conference. Everyone's Grenfell was like on a lot of people's lips. Yeah, in a way that I felt was quite tokenistic, actually. Yeah. Um, but she was like just talking about Grenfell Tower, and you know how awful it is. And then oh, she started, Theresa May's really cut off about. She's Grenfell really Tower. upset. She's I can really tell. Sad I can about see. It. <laughs> but this woman had the temerity to actually quote a stat when she was talking about social housing, what the government is not going to do, whatever. <laughs> about um, we looked. We, we we wanted to know who lives in social housing across the national picture. So we did this. We did that. We found out this. Uh, but they talked about income levels and stuff like that. And then like um and we found some. And there was a stat on the screen. I think it was. I think it literally said ninety percent of people are white in social housing. I'm sitting there thinking, what? Let me just. I consider myself an amateur sociologist. I'm like, let me just crunch that stat. Yeah. I'm like, well, considering that most people in the welfare state are pensioners, you know, yeah. on benefits. Then that and that that could be correct. And considering that some yeah. ethnic minority groups only make up like five or six percent of the population, that could be true on a national level. But locally, yeah, as in the case of London, as in the yeah. case of North it's Kensington, as in the case of Grenfell Tower, it's not true. <laughs> yeah, so, I what you, as in she's trying to spell. She's trying to dis- I felt, racism. Yeah, I felt she I was trying she to slide do- by. No, this idea that the actually housing, housing policy is innately racist. Yeah. in the UK, well, I, like that's I, just a I fundamental. Asked the, I asked like, the question. You know, and she did that classic. I went, sorry, just just to break that stat down. I'm sure it's true nationally, but if you've, you've evoked Grenfell Tower, and we know yeah. the majority of people in that estate and in many like it, we're not white. What do you, she went, I'm really glad you've asked that question. Oh, was she? Like, was she really she's glad? She's really glad. She's just so glad. She went, because actually, I've got some really interesting... Yes, we do find that ethnic minorities are disproportionately represented in social housing and also in um, poor quality social housing. Thank you. So it was like, yeah... And she and actually she quoted the report she got that from and I looked it up and yeah it's there the government did this paper interesting I mean also what is worth thinking about in terms of that is the government has a responsibility to house asylum seekers but they are not put in social housing even of the worst quality they are housed by the contracts get um, given to people like G4S or Serco and they it's like and to be fair to G4S the budget they're given is minuscule like minuscule so people get put up in accommodation that's like flea ridden or like like genuinely yeah. uninhabitable. Because also, if you're, they probably don't count in their stats um, on housing benefit, but in private rental, yeah, which so is what most people are yeah, doing now. Actually. I bet. Yeah. So that's where that stat is also mm-hmm. distortion. Because yeah, people in that old fashioned, I live in my social, my housing, so I live in Peabody yeah. flat. Yeah. That's becoming like a what? That's that's, that's really privileged position. I've met. Position my mum's in is amazing. 
who has inherited. So I met someone at the Catholic Church who I don't think she was Catholic in a Peabody estate in East London, but like Tower Hill kind of area. Okay. Um, and she has inherited the contract from her grandmother, who was oh. one of the original Peabody tenants. But that's what it used. That's how it used and to be so, with social yeah. housing, so, which, yeah. is, yeah. which actually helped a lot of people. Oh yeah. Like as in, I don't, I don't think that happens now. though, does no, it? Yeah, have, because you um, can pass succession. that. You can yeah, pass yeah, it yeah. down. So I also know someone else who's living in like a whole like Georgian townhouse in Islington yeah. social house that they've like got from wow. their grandma. It's <laughs> and that does not have that whole area of townhouses used to be social housing because yeah. the government compulsory purchase like an entire area um, wow we're going to have to wrap it up there. Oh. Ugh, no it's too interesting <laughs> it's, so, it's, talking it's interesting and it's also really sad and yeah, disgusting sad. and this government should be ashamed of themselves that's all <laughs> I have to say I um, agree yeah. you've been listening to Surviving Society with Chantelle Saskia and Rebecca Scroggs we'll be back every week or something or something like that (laughs) and we've only got a few episodes left before christmas so don't forget to subscribe and rate us and rate us